Thank you, Mike. You do a pretty good Scott. That was good. Thank you. Uh, Deuteronomy 13. I want to look again, again, to verse 5, if we can, that first sentence. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Clearly, God doesn't have much patience for false prophets. Uh, He wants them to be put to death. You find that as a common theme throughout Scripture. False prophets should be put to death. Now, how do we identify a a false prophet exactly? Well, in verse 2 of our text uh, in Deuteronomy 13, we can see that if a false prophet or if a prophet says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, that would be a sign. That's a false prophet. Because we know the first commandment and the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods, right? And the second commandment is very similar in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make any idols or bow down to them. And so anyone ever tells us to to worship or to seek after anything other than God, we know that would be a, a false prophet because we are called to, well, as we see in the Shema, the most important commandment according to Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And nothing should take precedence over our relationship with God. How else can we tell if someone is a false prophet exactly? Well, it's interesting. Uh, later in Deuteronomy 18, uh, God continues to give instruction about the warnings of false prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 to 22, we read these words. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Just a quick aside here, this is a prophecy of Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 is a prophecy of Jesus. He is, uh, Moses is speaking here, God is speaking to Moses. He says, I will raise up a prophet like you. And, And we see from the book of Acts and from the gospel of John that Jesus is that prophet like Moses who has arisen to speak God's word. And whoever will not listen to my words that I shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come pass, come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him." So a false prophet is someone who, who warns and says things that don't come true, right? And, and if you think about the history of the church, you know, ever since Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, there have been a lot of false prophets, people who have warned about the end of times and Armageddon and, and the end of time coming, and they even try to name dates, which we know is foolish because in Matthew 24, Jesus says himself that even the Son of Man doesn't know when the return of Christ will be or when the day of the Lord will be, when the day of judgment will actually come. And so if anyone tries to peg a date, we know that that's not true because Jesus doesn't know. No, we have just got to be ready. In fact, I saw this bumper sticker not long ago. I want to share with you a quick bumper sticker. Jesus is coming. Look busy. (laughs) When Jesus returns, what do you want to be doing? I hope I'm not just television, right? I hope, I'm, I'm, I hope when Jesus comes back, he can see that as best I can, I'm trying to love my neighbor as myself. I'm trying to make disciples of Jesus as Jesus commissioned us to do. In fact, uh, we, this sermon series is talking about walking by the Holy Spirit because we want to walk by the Holy Spirit, how to walk by the Holy Spirit. I want to look at this picture just for a moment. Notice you've got a young man there, and he's carrying a Bible, 
and he's headed towards the cross. And this is an appropriate image for this sermon series because we talked about in the first week of this sermon series that one of the principal roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of all that Jesus said and did. The Holy Spirit will, will make us mindful of the words of Jesus, like in John 3.16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, the Holy Spirit will continually remind us of all that Jesus said and did, like the words of Jesus in John 15, verse 13, when Jesus says, No greater love is there than this, than a man who is willing to die for his friends. Yes, the Holy Spirit will remind us of what Jesus said, and the Holy Spirit will remind us of, of what Jesus did, that ultimately Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins when He died on a cross. In fact, I think that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that while he was with the church in Corinth, he claimed to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross is a, is, is a, a key symbol for our faith because it points to the great love of our God. God doesn't just love us this much. He loves us this much with an unconditional, sacrificial love that we see at the cross of Christ. And of course, uh, in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, we read earlier that you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. If you look at that image again we have for the sermon series, you can see that that young man is not just headed towards the cross, but he's, he's carrying a Bible. As we talked about it, if we want to listen to the voice of God, if we want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, well, we hear the voice of the Spirit best through the words which He has, has inspired. And so we, as followers of Christ, should seek to meditate and memorize God's Word. And as we do so, the Holy Spirit will bring to memory the words of Christ, the words of the Bible that He helped inspire throughout our life. When we're going through a crisis or a difficult time, God's Word, which has been implanted in our heart, which we have memorized, will, will come to mind in the midst of difficult, challenging times. So what does it look like if everyone in the body of Christ will do that, will humbly spend time meditating and memorizing God's Word, allowing it to implant their hearts? What will it look like if we're all listening to the Holy Spirit speak to us through His Word? Well, to see what it looks like when the whole body of Christ, the whole church does it together, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles or iPhones or Androids or whatever you use to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank You that You wrote this letter you inspired Paul to write this letter to the church in Ephesus who was divided, experiencing hardship in the midst of a divisive time. And Lord, these words encourage them, and I pray that they might encourage us as well today, that as we read your word, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There was one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower region of, regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here is the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at those first three verses of Ephesians 4. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In this text in Ephesians 4, Paul makes it clear that if, well, in response to what God has done for us, we should be humble, eagerly seeking the unity of the bond of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And in so doing, together we can speak the truth in love. Now, in order to understand uh, Ephesians 4, it's good to put this text within its greater scriptural context. And if you may remember our sermon series from this summer, we, we went through Ephesians and we talked about how at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he tries to encourage this predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish church that even though they are Gentiles, even though they weren't a part of the original family of God, they have been adopted by God through faith in Christ to be a part of the family of faith. In fact, Paul helps them see that they were predestined, chosen before the foundation of the world. We read it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, as Presbyterians, uh, we often get a lot of credit for the doctrine of predestination, but we did not invent it. It's not ours. We're not afraid of it, though, because what John Calvin said during the Reformation is that the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination helps illuminate God's grace. 
it helps us see just how unmerited God's grace is that we don't deserve it. In fact, in the first century, when a child would be adopted, the child never chose their parents. The parent, on their own will, chose to adopt this child. And so Paul uses this language of adoption to help the Ephesians, these Gentile Ephesians, see that they were chosen by God, chosen before the foundation of the world, that there wasn't anything inherent in them that made them worthy to be chosen. Oh, God, in His amazing grace, His unmerited favor, chooses these Gentiles. In fact, these Gentiles, most likely from Ephesus, were pagans. They had been living in the city of Ephesus, uh, where the temple to Artemis was, where people were worshiping this goddess, and they probably had participated in that. They probably had a very pagan lifestyle prior to coming to faith in Christ, but God in His goodness and His grace and His love makes Himself known to these Ephesians. They come to faith in Christ, and Paul is helping them see that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. As as Presbyterians, we're not afraid of the doctrine of predestination. We celebrate the fact that God in His great love for us chose us before the foundation of the world. Even though we have a proclivity, a, a tendency towards sin, God still loves us. He chooses us despite our, our sin. As God says in Deuteronomy 7, God loves us because He loves us. And the doctrine of predestination helps us see that. And this grace, this unmerited favor, this predestinating love, it should ultimately make us humble because we know that we're not worthy of that kind of love. You know, my wife uh, has recently been reading this book with a group of women in our church called Humility by Andrew Murray. Now, my wife is already a very humble woman, so I have no idea why she would need to read this book, but she's really enjoyed it, and her love for this book made me take it off my shelves and, and read it again. And uh, Andrew Murray was a missionary in uh, South Africa. And he writes in the preface of his book a powerful line. He says, Meekness and lowliness of heart are the chief marks by which they who follow the Lamb of God are to be known. Meekness and lowliness of heart are the chief marks by which they who follow the Lamb of God are to be known. After all, we follow Jesus, who was so humble and so meek that he, even though he was God, he was born as a baby in a lowly manger, and then he grew up among us, and he taught us, and he healed us, and ultimately humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, as Paul points out to us in Philippians chapter 2. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, here in the 21st century, we know that humility is a virtue but in the first century, it wasn't viewed as a virtue. In fact, the word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 4, the Greek word for humility, was more often used to describe how someone had been humbled by their enemies. But beginning with Jesus, who humbled himself, we began to see that humility is a virtue. In fact, every great business book today will tell you that the best kind of leaders and organizations are humble leaders who seek to be servant leaders first. And where did they get that from? From Jesus who humbled himself so that we might be saved. It's as followers of Christ, this humility of Christ should lead us to be humble as well. In fact, Paul even kind of expounds on this idea of humility in verse 9 of Ephesians 4 when he, he writes, in saying Jesus ascended, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? 
Now we know from some of the earliest church fathers that they interpreted Ephesians 4, 9 and uh, 1 Peter 4, 6 to explain that when Jesus died, he descended into hell. He, he experienced death in its fullness. And, and that's why we say that in the Apostles' Creed, as you'll say later in the service today, that he descended into hell, that he died and descended into hell. And we know actually from Matthew 27, verse 46, that when Jesus was on the cross, he experienced hell on earth. For we read in Matthew 27, verse 46, while Jesus is on the cross, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemak sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus here is quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus was forsaken. He was abandoned by his heavenly Father on the cross so that he might experience death in all its fullness, so that Jesus might experience hell so that we wouldn't have to. For Paul explains in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus experienced the punishment that our sins deserve in all its fullness with his death on a cross by experiencing hell on earth, by descending into hell so that we wouldn't have to experience hell as well. This realization of what Christ has done for us, this electing love of God, it should make us humble. Would non-believers describe Christians as humble today? I think most Christians in America would tend to describe Christians as judgmental, not necessarily humble. Because I'm afraid what most non-Christians see and hear from the church today is, well, what we're against rather than what we're for. We need to speak about what we're for rather than what we're against. We need to let people know that, well, that we are for life and we're against death. That we are for love and against hate. We are for peace and against violence. This as we reflect on what it means to follow Christ and all that Christ has done for us, we will be humble. And in this humility, Paul points out that we will be eager, eager for unity as one body in his name, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There was one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you know how many denominations are in the world today? Too many, okay, too many. <laughs> no matter what the number is, I mean, there's over 30,000. I can't keep track. New denominations seem to come up. In fact, ours is not that old. It's pretty new as, as denominations go. But really, do we need that many denominations? Do we need that many branches of the tree? Uh, have we begun to major in the minors rather than major in the major? We need to focus on the central core of our faith, every Christian's faith, not the minors. There's one Lord, one God, and Father of us all. That's where our focus should be on, the fact that we all serve Jesus. He is our one Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is the common proclamation of the church today. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed, we always say that we believe in the holy Catholic church, and we use that small c, which means universal church. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord is a part of that church. And I was so proud of our church this summer when we gathered together with other churches as a part of the uniting as one movement that was happening here in Amarillo. You know, when other cities in our nation were experiencing racial riots, thanks be to God for the leadership of the African-American churches here in town who said, rather than rioting, let's pray, let's humble ourselves and do what 
what God tells the people of Israel to do in First Chron- or Second Chronicles chapter seven verse fourteen that if they will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then God will hear from heaven and heal their land. And so uh, Anthony Harris, who's the pastor of St. John's Baptist Church, invited us and so many other churches in town to, to join them on the, the, the lawn of Potter County uh, Courthouse to pray, to humble ourselves and, and simply pray. And that was such a great event, and I'm so glad that many of you got to attend that event. Then we went to Hodgetown, which was an even larger event where we packed out the stadium as best we could with uh, social distancing, and, and we prayed. And we prayed specifically the Lord's Prayer, and, and I was asked by Anthony to, to help lead the Lord's Prayer in English, and so I did, but, but it was great. We had the Lord's Prayer in Vietnamese after me, and then Laotian, and then in Spanish, and Orlando knew what they were saying. I wasn't exactly sure, but now I know enough Spanish to figure out what they were saying there. That was great. But for me, it was a picture of the kingdom of God that we see in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, where John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that people from all tribes in every nation, every nation, for Jesus tells us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And the Greek word in Matthew 28, verse 19, in that Great Commission is ethnos. We get the English word ethnic from ethnos. People from every nation are are welcome to come to Christ, and we're called to go out in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, so that together every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And look at what they're saying. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Salvation belongs to our God. They don't say salvation belongs to this political party or salvation belongs to this political representative or salvation belongs to this world leader. No, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. As we as the body of Christ We need to point to the others, to the reality, with one united voice, that salvation belongs to our God. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It humbles us as we think about all that Jesus has done for us. Then in humility, we are eager to to unite with other Christians from all over the world to speak with one common voice that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Amen? We're not supposed to speak it angrily. No, we're supposed to speak the truth in love, as Paul talks about in the latter part of Ephesians 4. For Paul explains when he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What, how we say the good news of God's love is just as important as what we say. For people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. We've got to speak the truth in love. After all, love is the first fruit of the Spirit, and we'll talk about that next Sunday. What are the fruits of the Spirit? It starts with love. Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 34 to 35, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this all will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The mark of a Christian, the mark of a follower of Christ is is love. And humility, as we humbly seek to love 
And we seek to do it together, knowing that our voice is much louder as we come together with one common voice, with the good news as we speak the truth in love, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Amen? And that is our message that our world needs to hear. I know that many in our community are upset about the election, the results, and they're worried about the new president, you know, but the bottom line is it doesn't matter who's in the White House. What matters most is who's on the throne, the throne in heaven and the throne in our own lives. Uh, earlier this week, Murray had uh, helped, me, uh, helped me discover a, a clever quote from Chuck Colson. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was a, a, a man who was involved with the Nixon White House as part of Watergate. And Chuck Colson, in his quote, says that the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. Chuck Colson was a Republican, right? The kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. The fact is that our salvation is not found in who's in the White House or the State House or the Capitol. Our salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And the world needs to hear that good news. The good news that God loves them so much that he sent his son to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, to live in perfect obedience and then die as the perfect sacrifice and then conquer both sin and death on our behalf so that with his resurrection on the third day so that we might know with full assurance that we will be with Christ in paradise, that nothing can separate us from his love, that he's come to bring us new life if we will simply walk by the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit means we walk in humility, seeking to be united with other Christians as we proclaim the truth in love, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that Jesus is still on the throne. We thank you for the fact that you are still sovereign, you are still in control, that nothing can separate us from your love, that you are the God who is always with us in Jesus Christ. You are Emmanuel. As so Lord, as your followers, I pray that by your spirit we might follow Paul's advice and in all humility we might seek the unity of the body of Christ, serving together, speaking the truth in love together, the truth, the core truth, that Jesus is Lord, and that we might live lives that reflect it, that Jesus is still on the throne, the throne in heaven and the throne of our lives as we seek to live as your faithful servants today. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.